Take your Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 1. And as you go there, um, let me kind of set the, uh, set the direction that we're going to be going um, in the preaching uh, in the beginning of the year. Um, we're going to use the time. Uh, for, first of all, I firmly believe that the Bible lays out the way that preaching should be done is expository preaching, verse by verse, and then the other part of that, it should be theological, that is faithful to sound doctrine, that has been, um, that's been handed down to us from Christ and the apostles. And then the, the, other, the other part of that is I think that it's best practice for the church to take the time to walk through uh, books in the Bible. And so that doesn't mean that's what we always have to be doing. But nevertheless, um, expositional preaching is always going verse by verse. And so in the beginning of the year, what I'd like to do is kind of hit some very important foundations for us as a church. And that being prayer, love, and the authority of the Bible. And so today, we'll be looking at Philippians, and we'll be, we'll be, the, the message will be a prayer for love in the church. And then next week, we'll be looking at the um, Second Timothy and just the doctrine of the Bible, basic doctrine of the Bible. And uh, we need to be reminded of that doctrine. It is foundational for us as a church. And through the month of January, the plan for us is to use these, uh, these messages as an opportunity to prepare us for a verse-by-verse study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that series will be entitled... Uh, life in light of the end, that is, light, life in light of death. And so um, I'm greatly looking forward to that. And so today, however, we want to begin uh, our new year with this message, a prayer for love in the church, Philippians 1, verse 8 to 11. So let's stand as we read God's word together. And here's what Paul writes here. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask that you bless your word. It is holy and inspired. And we pray that you will uh, empower this message with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I confess my inadequacy. And I ask that you would remove all distraction from us so that the gospel can be uh, clearly proclaimed, that the truth can be uh, clearly taught, and that our hearts will be ready to receive it. And uh, we thank you for your word and for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So one of the most frustrating things I think that probably all of us can relate to in our homes is when the internet is not working, right? You, you have that, that experience, and usually um, I'll first notice it, then a kid will walk in and like, what's wrong with the Wi-Fi? That's usually the question. And, uh, and, and what in, inevitably, and I don't know what happens, I don't know if like there's, there's a traffic jam in the, uh, in, in the internet and in the uh, it, but but nevertheless, um, what ends up happening is everybody it, it walks through the house complaining that there's no Wi-Fi. We go downstairs, and you know there's that box, and you just reset it. Usually, I just unplug it, wait 30 seconds, plug it back in, and then all of a sudden everything's working again. 
Well, I think the new year is kind of like that, right? You get to the end of the year and life is distracted. You get your life filled with all sorts of different things. And the new year is a time to kind of reset, to set new goals, to make changes in life, cultivate new habits. It's a time that many in the world use for resolutions, renewal, and refocus. But as Christians, and particularly as a church family, I believe that it's important for us to always be renewing, or perhaps we would say rekindling, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, our devotion to Him, and always to be resolving in our life to live for Him more devotedly. In fact, I've been reading and reading and studying the 70 resolutions written by Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the 18th century um, during the First Great Awakening and uh, preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what's interesting about, what, about Jonathan Edwards is he wrote these 70 resolutions um, about living life for the glory of God to stir in him a resolve to live for the Lord and to also stir in him a joy for his salvation. 19 years old, wrote these 70 resolutions. And so in, in, in many senses, as I, as I think about that, uh, that's what we always should be doing as Christians, resolving, renewing, rekindling. This past week, I listened to Sinclair Ferguson's podcast, Things Unseen. Maybe you listened to that podcast. I highly recommend it. And as I was listening to it, I was reminded how some churches begin each year reading prayers or statements that have been written uh, throughout the history of the church or in particular to their church tradition. And they read these together as a church to renew their commitment to Christ and to one another. That's a healthy practice because... We have not reached perfection, and we all fall short. That's why we come to the end of the year realizing all the resolutions we did not keep. And so we need to reset like our internet or Wi-Fi issues at home. Well, to a large degree, Paul does that very thing here in this opening of, in the opening of his letters to the churches, like this one that he's written to the church at Philippi. And in the first verses, if you go all the way back to verse 1, what he does is he reminds the church of how Christ has rescued them from their sin and has established them as a church. And what you pick up on immediately is Paul's overwhelming love for the Lord Jesus Christ, his gratitude for God's grace, and his heartfelt love for the church. Look at this in verse 8. The text says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, he longs to be with them because of the special, unique fellowship that he shares with them because of their faith in Christ. And when you read that statement, how he yearns to be with these believers, how much he loves them, and he says that over and over, in fact, several times throughout the first several verses. He states how, uh, how, 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 how dear they are to his heart. And so think about Paul in terms of what his life was before he knew Christ. He once hated Christians. In fact, he sought to put them to death. And now he is preaching Christ. He's establishing churches. 
and he displays an immense love for fellow believers. And what that shows you is how transformative the power of the gospel is. He viewed the church, to use Spurgeon's words, as the dearest place on earth. Here's Spurgeon. Nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us also belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, our labors, we may support and strengthen it. The church is not an institution for perfect people. It is a sanctuary for sinners, saved by grace, a nursery for God's sweet children to be nurtured and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. The church is the dearest place on earth. And I think that's so powerful that uh, what Spurgeon's words there, and I believe that's exactly how the Apostle Paul felt about the church, about the people that God has saved and brought together locally throughout the, uh, the minor Asia, or Asia Minor. And because of that conviction, he wanted them to be resolved in their devotion to Jesus Christ and their love for one another. Get that. He wanted them to be resolved in their devotion to Christ and their love for one another. He desired this. And what Paul does here in these verses is he models to us how we should pray. How we should pray in this coming year. How we should pray when we are together. How we should pray on a daily basis for one another. And so here's the key point of verses 8 to 11. Pray that our love for one another overflows and reflects the beauty of the gospel. That's what Paul prays for. I don't think he questions whether or not they get the gospel, because they do. But as you read through this letter, you will see that there are plenty of areas in the life of this church where they need to grow in their love for one another. And so let's just take that prayer and let's pray that. When we come in this midweek, this coming Wednesday, and we gather for prayer and Bible study, let's pray this prayer that our love for one another will overflow and that it will reflect the beauty of the gospel. Let's unpack what that looks like by looking at three parts to this prayer. You'll see first the resolve to pray. And then you'll see the reason he prays this particular prayer. And then you'll see the results of this prayer. So let's first look at the resolve to pray in verse 9. Look at what he says. He writes, it is my prayer. Flowing out of this, this, this desire to be with them, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. So the first thing you should just note there in his resolve is that we must pray with commitment. He's committed to pray. This commitment to prayer reflected Paul's understanding and the church's sense that it cannot function apart from divine power from the Holy Spirit. It was not just their duty to pray. It is not just our duty to pray, it is our delight to pray. Paul desired to pray. 
He, lo- he loved to pray for the church, for fellow believers. He longed to pray these things for them. And not only did he desire it, he delighted in it. He found joy in it. Can we say the same today? Consider the early church. This was highlighted this morning in your Sunday school classes. And, and it's Acts 1, verse 14. L- listen to these words. All these, that is everyone that, was, that had gathered together in the upper room, there in Acts chapter 1, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? To prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All of the early believers, all of the disciples that, that were there, all of the, the women that had followed Christ, Mary, Christ's mother, even his brothers and other family members had gathered to devote themselves to prayer. How much more should we do that the same today in our church? John MacArthur writes, prayer is a compulsion for the spiritually mature Christian. But yet prayer is the hardest thing, I would think, for all of us, if we were honest. But the reason that prayer is a compulsion for the spiritually mature Christian is because prayer recognizes our complete dependence on God. We need from God what we do not have in ourselves. We need from God what we do not have in ourselves. And He has given us everything that we need through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us everything we need. We do not look to, need to look within. We do not need to look to each other. We do not need to look at our plans and our, our disciplines and our practices and our programs and our finan- our money and our possessions. We don't need to look to those things for power. We need to look to Christ. And here's the thing. The Holy Spirit has been sent to supply us with all that Christ has purchased in our salvation. To make it unfold in our lives. And so in this case, context, hear me. They did not possess, and we do not possess, the natural capacity to love one another in a selfless manner. Did you hear that? We do not possess the natural capacity... To love one another as is commanded here. That doesn't come from within. That comes from Him. And that's why we pray, that's why Paul prays, that we must pray for love to flourish and to overflow. Again, it is my prayer that your love may abound, overflow, more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So notice here that the prayer then, this commitment to prayer, is to pray that love among believers will flourish and overflow. The prayer is for love to abound. That's the word used in the ESV. To overflow. Now the question we would ask first is, what is the meaning of the word love? Well, the word love here is the highest expression of love. It's agape. That's the Greek for this word love here particularly in this passage. It is always used in reference to God's love. 
And we get a sense of its meaning in the first two chapters of the letter. Notice, if you go back to verse 3, I thank God, my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so notice there, this love that, this love that Paul has for them is a love that is a, it's a fellowship that he shares with him. A partnership in the gospel. He holds them dear because of faith in Christ. And, and then if you go to chapter 2 and you look at verse 1, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. That right there is agape love. It is selfless, self-giving love. That would be God's love. And what Paul describes here in his love for them, if you re- as we've read those verses, does Paul have any requirements of them for his love? Does he say, well, I love you as long as you meet my expectations? No, there's no requirements, no expectations, no love language rules whereby he loves them for what they do for him. He loves them because Christ loves them and because Christ loved him. And therefore, the gospel has formed this love for the church. And I would also add to this, notice the use of the word all. He doesn't say, I love some of you. He doesn't say, I love a few of you. He says, I don't love the ones that are most like me. He says, I love all of you. All. Underline it as you go through that through Philippians chapter 1. He loves all of them. No matter their background. No matter the sins that they have emerged out of. No matter their struggles. No matter their challenges. No matter their immaturities or imperfections. He loves them all. And is thankful for God's grace in their life and bringing them together. Now, again, in chapter 2, what is the tendency of the congregation, apparently? Is it selfless love? No. It's selfish ambition. That's the tendency of the people. See? Selfless love doesn't come naturally. And so he wants them to be selfless and self-giving, to set aside their own desires and ambitions for the sake of each other. That's what he desires for them. And so, as he as he then writes this, He wants them to set those things aside and he prays that this church will be radically united and defined by self-giving love that only looks to the good of others. Do you hear this? And here's what he wants. He wants this kind of self-giving, selfless love to overflow, to come over the rim, 
Hey, have you ever, when, when our kids were younger, when we would go on vacation and we would get to the room and usually sometimes there'd be a jacuzzi in the room and the kids would love it when we'd fill that jacuzzi up and there's always the bubble, the bubbles, a bottle of bubbles, right? Get that water just a little bit hot and you take that and here's what I would do. I would just empty that entire thing. Yeah, yeah, and then they'd get their, their swimming gear on, they'd get in the jacuzzi, and by the time Christy got in there, the, the, the bubbles were like hitting the ceiling and overflowing. They loved it. I loved it. It was fun. It overflowed, right? The concept here is the same, that the church will overflow, that it will just run over. This love that has been formed in the life of the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it will just bubble over into the lives of each other. So the question we would ask then is, how can this love, how can that happen? Well, the answer is given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what makes love flourish. Isn't that what Paul asserted in verse 8? I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, I love you more and more the more that I think about Christ. The more that I sing the gospel, the more I pray the gospel, the more I read the gospel, the more I understand the entire scope of God's plan of redemption in Scripture, the more my heart is filled with love. And that love is the love of God for me as a sinner that He has saved. And the only thing that can happen, the more that our hearts are filled with the love of God, is that Romans 5, it overflows. Christ, and if you go to verse, to Philippians 2, after Paul says that he wants, after, after he says this, after he tells them that do nothing from selfish ambition, that he wants them to, to have the same love being in full accord of one mind, but in humility, in humility count others more significant than yourselves, what's the answer to that? Is the answer create a plan in order to execute that, no, the answer is this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought himself what? What does the text say? Who thought himself, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death point of the death on the cross. Wow. There it is. How do we overflow with love? We're filled with the gospel. Christ loved me. He came down from heaven. He took on flesh and became man. He lived a righteous life, an act of obedience, loving God perfectly and loving neighbor perfectly. He went to the cross and he died for our sins as our substitute. He rose again from the dead to grant new life. He is seated in heaven as our mediator. And the more I understand that Christ did that for me, the more I am filled with God's love. And that love overflows. Listen, nothing he withheld for our eternal good. And he gave everything for our salvation. And so the key for us to overflow with love is to be continually filled and reminded of the love that has come to us in the gospel. 
Now, in verse 9, look at it, because it says this. Verse 9 also answers the question. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The LSB reads this, full knowledge and all discernment. The word discernment means depth of insight. Full knowledge. In other words, and if you go to all the opening, of the, uh, uh, opening letters that Paul writes, whenever he uses this word knowledge, he is referring to the knowledge of God that has come to us through the gospel. The more fully we know the gospel and the truths of salvation, and the deeper we go into gospel wisdom, the greater we will love and the less selfish we will be. Did you hear that? It's inevitable. When Pastor Dan read Ephesians 3, that's exactly what that text was saying. That the more we comprehend the, just the full, the, the, the full scope of God's love for us, that what will happen is our love for one another will simply expand. You see, let me be clear, and, and I think we all need this reminder. I think that I need this reminder. Knowledge can be dangerous. Because if we don't understand the end goal of the knowledge of God, it can puff us up. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13? That it can make us prideful? Hear me. You can know all the theology of the Bible. You can study every confession that has ever been written. You can quote every catechism of the church throughout history. You can attend every Bible conference and hear all of your favorite preachers every year and you can earn multiple seminary degrees from the most orthodox institutions that exist right now. But if you do not love God and overflow with love for others, then every bit of all of that is useless. It's useless. 1 Corinthians 13 demonstrates that. You know, I, I sometimes become astounded in some ways when you look at heroes of the faith who were bold for the gospel but failed to love in their homes. That were known for being unkind and mean and cruel. I don't know how to, I don't know how to, 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 to understand that. I understand my own sinfulness. I understand my own proclivities. I understand my own shortcomings. But what it does remind me of is that what I hope happens is that the more that I know God, the more that I understand the gospel, that what it will do is that it will work in my heart and overflow with love and kindness and joy and peace and gentleness, and humility, and meekness. That the more I understand the greatness of God and the grace of his gospel, the smaller that I will become. And the more grateful I will be. When what we know makes us harsh, hateful, mean, unkind, impatient, unreasonable, then we need to go back to the basics. And you know what the basics are? Christ and the cross. And the grace of God. Those things should melt our hearts of stone. And then fill us with love that we will overflow. And so Paul here asserts 
that the knowledge of the gospel and the truth will cause us to overflow with love. And I, I won't read this text, but again, I, I just want to point it out. Ephesians 3, Pastor Dan read that earlier, and I, I, that is exactly what that text is saying. And look at the last part, and that to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, and then that overflows into our life with one another. And so that leads us to ask two questions. Are you and I, are we going to be committed to this kind of prayer? And then the second question is, does the truth of the gospel fuel your love for one another? Not only are we going to be committed to this kind of prayer, but will we be committed to this kind of love? This kind of gospel love. So again, going back to that word knowledge and all discernment, depth of insight. In other words, the more, full I, the more fully I understand the gospel, the depth of insight is this. I will then know how to love you the more I understand the gospel. I will understand that if Christ entered into this wreck of a world and he saved me from my wreck of a life, then I can share, we can share this mess together as God puts it back together. It, it, it means that, that, that I can, that, that we are enabled to give sacrificially for one another. It means that we are able to endure all things, to bear all things. As he lays out in 1 Corinthians 13. In other words, the, the more I understand the gospel and the truths of the gospel, the, it gives me the depth of insight I need to know how I can love you and others in my life. And that leads us to the second point. The reason to pray. The reason to pray this kind of prayer, verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So here's where he gets practical. So that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so, in other words, the reason to pray this kind of prayer is because what will happen if we're overflowing with love is that, one, love will inform our conduct within the church. And that's what he means by that phrase, may approve what is excellent. That is, you'll know what to do. You'll know how to love. You'll know the steps you need to take. In other words, we pray that love to abound more and more so that we will choose the best way to express love toward each other. You follow this? This happens in all relationships. As saints, that's somewhat easy. As sinners, that's where it gets tough, right? But what it means is, is that when I come into life with believers, there are some who are easily discouraged. I need to encourage. There's some that I need to be patient with. There's some that you just need to be kind with. There are others that you just need to be direct and bold with. What happens is, is that love informs us how we express it to one another. And if, if in the end we have each other's good in mind because of the gospel, then we can express the truth in love and love with truth. And then when we think about the complications that come being sinners, right? How do we express love in difficult relationships? Given our differences, different our backgrounds, given, given everything that happens when God brings different people together. Let me just illustrate it this way in terms of relationships. My wife and I have a fight. I get mad at the kids. I push the cat with my foot. 
I don't kick him. I just push him. I wrong another person. Seldom do I kick that cat, just so you know. So anyway, I am wronged by another person. Okay, you all got these scenarios? Now, maybe you're in the camp where, like, you never have a fight with your spouse. Great. You can counsel me after church. Or you never get mad at your kids because they're saints and angels that came down from heaven. I don't know. But the point is, is that in the real world, all of these things happen. And when those things happen, we have a choice. Ready? How do I express and show gospel-saturated love in each of these situations? Maybe I need to humble myself and say I'm sorry. Maybe I need to say I need your forgiveness. Maybe I need to grant forgiveness. Maybe I need to hear and be more understanding. Right? I, I mean, I could just go on. I mean, there's all sorts of things that uh, avoid. But the point that I'm getting at is, is that when he says love informs our conduct within the church, when he says approve what is excellent, it means that we make the right choice to express gospel love. Let's grab three things from the scriptures about love. You ready? Here they are. Maybe this will help us. One, love is self-giving. Another word we might use is self-sacrificing. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so what this means is, is that I will have to receive hurt sometimes And I will also have to give sacrificially if I'm going to walk in love with other forgiven sinners. You with me? I will have to sacrifice. If I'm going to walk in love with other people who were fallen with me as I am and yet as saved as I am, then I will have to sometimes sacrifice my safety, my pride, my self-righteousness, and even sometimes my best of intentions. Sometimes it means in the life of church, I might be misunderstood or I might even be maligned. But I must walk in love that is self-sacrificing. And any relationship requires that. Number two, love, love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4 verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, I take it that the reason these commands are in the New Testament is because none of these early Christians were knocking this out of the park. Okay? So when he says, when he says above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What he means is if love is real, if it's genuine, sincere, then it will cover a multitude of sins. That's pretty expansive, isn't it? Hear me. What it means is it doesn't leave room for me to harbor or hold on to bitterness, malice, or hatred. It means that I can't live with grudges and resentments. It also means that I can't live my whole life rehearsing how I was mistreated. To cover sins means that I will seek forgiveness, I will extend forgiveness, I will live in reconciliation, and when those things happen, I'll not bring it up anymore. Because that's how God's dealt with me. I think the New Testament is clear. We cover sin with one another by forgiving each other and sometimes forbearing with one another. It means we just have to endure with one another as we grow and mature in Christ and as the gospel takes root. And then the, the last thing here is love is radically committed to the good of others. Look at what Paul says in Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Don't let it be pretentious. Don't put strings attached. Just let it be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another. I love this with brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. Hear me, church. It means I, I must seek the good of the other and I must maintain brotherly affection. Even when there's differences. Even when we disagree. What I won't lose sight of, what I can't lose sight of, is that you are my brothers and my sisters in Christ Jesus. We are family because of the blood of Christ. And I must never let anything overshadow that brotherly affection. That's what Paul's driving at for these believers here in Rome. These are just ways that we do what is excellent. Isn't that what he's praying for? You do what is excellent? And you do that by loving sacrificially, by being committed to the good of others, by covering a multitude of sins. And by doing so, we maintain gospel love and unity. Now, church, I'm going to tell you right now, the devil does not want us to do this. He does not want us to pray for this kind of love. And he doesn't want us to love like this. He wants us to nitpick each other. He wants us to be like many church environments that I've encountered over my course of my Christian life. Hypercritical, overly judgmental, self-righteously prideful, expectantly rigid. You can see me, I'll tell you my story at a later time. But here, you know, if I could just root this down to one thing that I think the devil is brilliant at. Because, because I deal with this when I talk to people and they're having conflict in their marriages. And, 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 and this is something that my wife and I must always come back to over and over again when, when we're working through conflicts is that Satan wants us to believe that we're the enemies to each other. He wants us to think that we're enemies. And, but the truth is we're not. We're husband and wife. In church, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we have a family obligation to do these things based on the gospel. Richard Baxter captures this incredibly. I, when I first read this, I had to find my shoes because I was knocked out of my shoes when I read this. And then I began to dig into, I couldn't believe the things that Puritans argued about. You'd be stunned. And probably a few Puritans, you wouldn't even want to come into your church. I mean, that's, that's where they were. Listen to what Baxter says. Satan will pretend to any sort of strictness by which he can mortify love, kill love in the church. If you can devise any such strictness of opinions or exactness in church orders or strictness in worship as, as will but help to kill men's love and set the churches in divisions, Satan will be your helper and will be the strictest and exactest of you all. He will reprove Christ as a Sabbath breaker, as a gluttonous person, as a wine bibber, and a friend of publicans and sinners. And as an enemy to Caesar too. You think when a wrathful, envious heat is kindled in you against men for their fault, that it certainly is zeal of God's exciting. But mark whether it may, it, it have not more wrath than love in it. And whether it tend not more to disgrace your brother than to cure him. Or to make parties and divisions than to heal them. That is convicting. And so hear, hear me, with that in mind, you may, you may not and do not have to agree with me on everything. In fact, there will be things over which we differ. Not doctrinal things, not essential things, but usually what I've experienced in the life of the church in my years of being a Christian and even pastoring is it's usually practical. Usually it's preferential. I was exhausted at the end of 2020. Masks, vaccines, politics, this and that, and all the, all the wrangling. 
that got just to the point of just complete nonsense is what it became. Foolishness. People turning on each other when what they should have been doing is turning to Christ and overflowing with love. You see, at the end of the day, that, those are the things. It's, it's the, the one thing. At the end of the day, it's not those things. It's not how you parent or how you do this or how you do that. We can have all sorts of variety when it comes to all of that. But I'm going to tell you the one thing that is essential is that we conduct, conduct ourselves in love and that we strive for unity in the foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a non-negotiable. You go back to all those debates, none of that mattered. But what mattered most is, and actually that's a gift. Those debates are a gift because what it does is it challenges the church of can we maintain love for one another and unity even when we disagree or differ, right? And you'll find this out with me. On some of these preferential things, you bring it up to me and you want to talk about it, eventually I'll just walk away because I just don't care. So what does this do, though? When we do this, when love, when love informs our conduct within the church, here's what it does. You ready? It shapes our character as the church. Isn't that what he says in the text? He says, so be, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Love shapes our character. When all of this happens, when we do these things, we will be pure and blameless. This doesn't mean that we will be perfect or a perfect church. But what it means is the gospel will be taking root and making us complete or mature. We will be what God saved us to be, pure and blameless in our love for one another. This means that we will be sincere. Again, no pretense. No hidden motives. Truly seeking the good of others. Our attitudes will be in check with the gospel. And our actions, word, disposition, will show it. We'll have love in those things. Blameless in that we will not be divided by envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. Folks, this is hard work. That's why Paul says, I pray that love will overflow. It requires the work of the Spirit. It's messy. But ultimately, it displays the power of God. And lastly, the reason we pray this is because love prepares the day for the day of Christ. Folks, we are preparing for the day of Christ when it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And the church is a microcosm of this. The church is to be reflecting the beauty of Christ by living these things out, by loving in the kingdom of to come, we will love freed from sin and all selfish ambition. Imagine that. So the reason we pray is so that our conduct and our character will be shaped by the gospel. And we'll be ready when Christ returns. And we'll not only be ready, but we'll be expectant because then everything will be perfect. So here's the truth applied. How do we need to love one another better? Think about that for just a second. How do we need to love one another better? And how do we not only need to love one another better, are we known for our love as much as our sound doctrine? Are we? Because I would say I want to be known for the truth. But I think we ought to say we need to be known for our truth and for our love. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. And even as Christians, we need to be reminded, I don't want to be known for my personal convictions, because they don't matter, or my personal preferences. 
So that leads us to a third thing, the result of prayer. What's the result? Verse 11, quickly. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the result of this prayer that he resolved to pray and all the reasons he prayed it is this, that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now hear me. What is the result? Underline it. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. The church will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now again, I want to correct us because we read these passages and we only think of it as individual. He's talking about the whole church. That this church in Philippi will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, look at Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit... It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so there's a snapshot of what filled with the fruit of righteousness. In other words, what will be displayed in the life of the church are people who are bearing the fruit of their salvation. But the church itself will display this fruit of righteousness. The church will be filled with kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, love, joy, peace, patience. You know where you can see that displayed? In the life of God's people that are being defined by the gospel. You see, it's like this. If you just go to the supermarket and you walk up to a bin and you pick up a piece of fruit... Nothing really wonderful about that. I mean, it is a piece of fruit, but it's not picture worthy. But if you go to, if somebody delivers to you a fruit basket, that has a lot more aesthetic to it, doesn't it? It's beautiful because it displays everything. And that's the concept here. I know we can take that into the ridiculous, but my point simply is this is that the church is display the fruit of the Spirit at work in the lives of believers. Not that we're perfect in these things, but that these things are happening in our lives, and as a result, because of Christ, we're being, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And how beautiful this is, because listen, this fruit of righteousness, what does it come from? Look, it's from the grace of Christ, and it's for the glory of God. And that's how the passage ends. It's from the grace of Christ. All the fruit, all the love, all the joy, all the peace, all of this is the product of Christ in us working out our salvation. And he's given us a church family for this to be worked out. And it's all for the glory of God. To show God's amazing worth in Christ Jesus. And so in conclusion, here's the thought. John 13, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you, as also are, are you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. And that's why Paul prays this. In other words, the church exists, listen, to display the beauty of the gospel. That's why Paul is praying this prayer. 
And so as we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that has come by the grace of Christ in our life and for the glory of God, God's greatness is on display because God has brought a variety of people with all sorts of differences who disagree, who do all sorts of things sometimes to annoy, to hurt, to harm, but some each other, but somehow God is working in their midst and they are united and not only united in the spirit, but they're overflowing in love for one another. Nothing can display the beauty of the gospel better than that. And that's why the church's mission is not just to preach the gospel. It's to reflect the gospel by our love for one another overflowing into the world around us. So maybe you're, like I said in the beginning, you just need to unplug the modem and replug it in. Because the Wi-Fi somehow has been messed up. I don't know what that means for you, but maybe it means this. Maybe it just simply means that you need to renew not only your devotion to Jesus Christ today, but you need to renew your love for one another so that in the coming year, we will be known not just for the truth we preach, but the love that we share with one another and the world around us. So will you devote yourself to Paul's prayer? Will you overflow with love toward each other? What of those things that are meant, that I mentioned earlier would you need to actually express, to do in these coming days? And then lastly, will you reflect the beauty of the gospel? May we pray that the Lord will do this in our midst and through our lives as we stand. Let's stand and let's bow our heads as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for your love that you have extended to us through Christ Jesus. And I pray now that our life will overflow with this love. Help us to cover a multitude of sins. Help us to love each other in a self-sacrificing way. Help us to be quick to forgive, quick to forbear, quick to endure, quick to reconcile. And quick to receive those things into our lives. And God, I pray that what will happen here is that you will knit our hearts together in the truth of the gospel. And that on display at Chillicothe Baptist is a people who not only profess the truth of Christ and the truth of your word, but overflow in love for one another. We pray that you would enable us to do this because it's not possible by our own power. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will work in our midst. Even now, in Jesus' name, amen.